everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the MobileCast. We're coming to you live from the MobileCast studio here in Oakland, New Jersey, and I'm your host, Brian Katz. We have a great show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking about mobile security, soup to nuts, with a great guest. I'm really excited to have Rich Mogul here, CEO of Securosis and security analyst practitioner extraordinaire on the show today. Rich started in security when it was really physical security and moved on from there as an independent consultant, Gartner analyst, conference founder, and now CEO of his own company. Welcome to the show, Rich, and please introduce yourself. I think you did a pretty good job. So this is Rich. I've been uh, covering security and mobile security for entirely too long uh, and uh, do most of my writing over at Securosis. I also write some consumer stuff at Macworld. And I'm the security editor over at Tidbit. So it means I'm a little bit more familiar with on the Mac side than the Android side, but I uh, do need to cover both. I, it, it's scary, Rich, but I've actually been reading you for as long as you've been writing. Oh, no. <laughs> Those so. term papers really were, were not my best work. Yeah, when you started when you started doing the Tidbit stuff and the Macworld stuff, I mean, I remember you from way back when. But, um, you know, what I find interesting about your bio just before we get into some really cool questions is, yeah, you know, like a couple other people in security, you actually started off in physical security, and I'm going to guess that you took some of those lessons to, you know, regular, you know, mobile security, all the security stuff that you do. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, definitely that that's kind of I've always had an interest in security, and in college, uh, I ran crowd control for the University of Colorado as my my student job. So I didn't run it the whole time I was there, but for for part of the time that I was there, I actually. You know, I was 20-something years old, and I was in charge of security for events, uh, in some cases with up to 100,000 people, um, as well as working a lot of concerts and stuff in the Denver music scene. So uh, kind of an interesting background. Um, had a lot of fun doing it until I got really burnt out on it because you just meet a bunch of jerk roadies who, anyway, won't go there. And when I started getting involved with technology, I was just thus naturally drawn to security, and there were just a lot of parallels between the two. And, and I think, you know, look, I've, I've met you um, a couple times and, you know, you even say it in your um, intro on your about page, but I mean, you're not a big guy. And yet I know you've been a bouncer and everything else. And I think that that actually has to do with some of the way you approach security and you handle it. I don't think you have to be the biggest and the baddest person there. No, you don't. I, but, you know, let's be honest, you've met me after I learned a lot of hard <laughs> lessons. So yeah, for our listeners, I'm at about five, seven and you know, somewhere between 140 and 150, depending if I'm focusing more on triathlons or, or more on lifting weights and martial arts, uh, which is stuff I've done in the past. And, you know, look, all, all it comes down to is knowing people, understanding people, because, you know, as much as we tend to be very technology focused, you know, computers don't kill other computers. Uh, you know, people are involved there. And it's kind of understanding that human nature. And, and of course, there's a physical side of that as well as, uh, understanding those differences of human behavior when you go online. Okay, so let's get started then. So, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Let's, you know, really let's start generally and talk a little bit about the history of mobility and security because, you know, you started when there was no such thing as mobile. You know, the biggest thing was, you know, the uh, the compact machine and everything else that were the 25-pound machines with the flip-out keyboard and the green screen. How have you seen it transition? Yeah, I mean, big change. You know, and actually, you're you're a little wrong there. When I started mobile security, it was because I was an emergency responder as a firefighter and a paramedic, and having to worry about things like the press listening into our radio calls, uh, and so you know, real 
different then and then we but let's be honest you're focusing more on the digital side of things uh and, and it's been an interesting evolution because you know we went from surely forward in some cases almost dumb technologies where the the focus was on the the pieces that the user never sees uh in terms of securing the the wire the radio network behind the scenes and in many cases relying on security by obscurity uh that that's how a lot of the initial gsm security was as well as some of the – and there basically was none for analog cell phones. They, they just made it illegal to do uh, sniffing of cell phones. Uh, to the situation we've got today where it is uh, very much a part of everybody's lives, where we have devices with very sensitive information stored on them and where the attackers you know, are, are – I mean they just know. There are a lot more people in the world with cell phones than there are with computers. And that alone – by like a difference of billions – uh, of individuals, so that alone is the kind of thing that that only stupid bad guys ignore. Yeah, but okay, so that makes tons of sense to me. But how have you seen it move from you know, I you know I've been in this industry probably about as long as you, and you know I'm used to okay, we protected the mainframe, and then it was well we own the desktop, we would chain it to the desk, and it was too heavy to carry out anyway without somebody noticing, and you know. Then, you know, what, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, we started looking at things like encrypting the drive and doing things like that as we started moving to laptops. Have you seen that move to mobile um, phones and OSs and stuff like that? Yeah, it's been interesting. So there's a couple of things. First is there's a very wide range of differences between the different mobile phone ecosystems. Now, probably the biggest change has been the shift from being uh, phone provider-centric to device and operating system centric. So if you think about, uh, you know, before the iPhone, essentially, yeah, some people knew what Symbian was and, and some people knew about kind of the early operating systems and there was sort of a mini app ecosystem and WAP pages and things along those lines. But, but everything was really very completely locked down by the provider and users were completely relying on the provider for any security. Uh, and the, the phones weren't generally used for data except for idiots like you and me who would adopt their early technologies and sit there for three hours waiting for something to download over our um, you know, a, a slow, not even GPRS. I'm trying to remember. Uh, what was it? What was the one? Oh, the slower. Uh, uh, now you're making me not even. Yeah. So I, you. Uh, <laughs> well, you're going way back. I mean, I'm, I'm remembering when I had my first BlackBerry in '99, uh, and you know, those were the you know the first thing yep. they talked about security, and you know, but as you said, they were all locked down. Yeah, and it was and it was very different. So that was you know, BlackBerry actually did a great job. Very lockdown devices, metrics security oriented. And now we have app ecosystems and that changes everything. Because once you allow the users to modify the device, that opens up uh, an entire can of worms from a security perspective. And it's not that we haven't done pieces and bits and pieces of this before, but you know, I'm a firm believer the little anecdote. One of the guys that's one of our contributing analysts at, at Securosis, you know, he likes to make fun of Apple for lack of innovation. He goes, because we've seen all these pieces before. And I go, you know what? That's fine. Yeah, somebody may have had the idea first, but when a company is actually able to implement that and distribute it at scale, that's a different kind of innovation. And that's kind of the world that we're in today and we're dealing with where there's been this massive disruptive change through the combination of mobile devices and cloud computing and the app ecosystems, uh, as well as just how these things have integrated with people's lives. Um, and that's really forced us to you know, examine security models. And, and what I love about this is we are seeing like the 
biggest open experiment in the world, and we're actually getting results back on which does better from a security perspective, and the the numbers aren't lying. No, I, I you know it's easy to see, and I agree with you. And you know it's interesting when you have more of your life. It used to be you know you protected your wallet, you were mugged, you had to change some credit cards, do a few other things, you lost some money. These days, you ha- you may have that information, but you may have a ton more in your device. And, you know, it's a whole new world. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I've got – I use one password on my devices. I have every password to every system I have access to except a couple. We have web browsers. We have – you know, I don't care about contacts and photos. I mean, that that's the minimal stuff. You, you get somebody's phone, you get access to their email if that individual hasn't secured that phone properly. And that's all the local physical loss side, never mind the uh, the – the, the potential for remote hacking, which you know really didn't exist until very recently. Yeah, and you know it's you know for me, you know, I learned years ago. I used to carry um, a copy of my passport with me. You know, if you go back ten years ago when I would travel to Europe or wherever else. These days, you know, I have that information on my phone, so that you know, as long as I if I lose my passport, at least I have a copy of it somewhere, and or it's in my Dropbox or whatever you know box wherever I keep it encrypted and. You know, doing that, but most people don't encrypt it. Most people, you know, it's sitting there; it's in their photo roll. Yeah, exactly. And you know, again, we're we're focusing on the risk and the threat side of it, and that's not really where I like to spend most of my time because I think a lot of that stuff is, you know, we we call it FUD for people who don't know. It's fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yeah, I'm not real big on the whole FUD thing. I, I'm more interested in knowing, you know, what are the specifics. What are the differences between the platforms, and, and what can people do to actually keep those things secure that makes them still usable devices? Okay, so perfect segue. So let's start. Let's hit, you know, we get to 2007. Um, the iPhone first comes out. You know, big, unbelievable device, but, you know, not till 2008 when you could start installing apps and doing all this other stuff. And then we have Android and all. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, security and Android, iOS, and you know, if you feel comfortable, we can talk about Windows Phone as well. But you know, I'll we'll take it to your comfort level there. Yeah. So um, I'm more in depth with Android and iOS, a little bit of Windows Phone, a little bit of BlackBerry, and and here's kind of how I evaluate the ecosystem. Practically speaking, uh, most very few of your listeners are probably focused on BlackBerry right now. The the short answer is is it has reduced its security as BlackBerry has struggled as a company. It's not something that they have done deliberately, but as they've updated the operating system to be more competitive. By the same token, there's so few people still on Blackberries, uh, and the ones that are frequently on the more secure versions of it, that you know, it's not there's not a lot there for the bad guys. So security researchers can crack through that stuff. There's not as many exploits, so it's definitely a lower risk than some of the other options. Windows Phone, again, just not enough market adoption for any pretty real high level of risk there. And I don't mean to dismiss those two, but yeah, I'll be honest. If I wasn't using iOS, I'd probably go Windows Phone next because it looks really interesting to me. Uh, it's it's kind of different as opposed to an Android phone, which to me just looks like another version of iOS, um, a, a cheap knockoff. But the uh, uh, that yeah, no, it's no, just, no, no. Look, look, it's a fair state. Look, we can say who copied whom or who did what to whom, but you know, yes, they you know the app. You see a little bit of innovation on both sides and. We can argue how much is how much, but, you know, I, I don't disagree with you that, you know, it's the same sort of springboard layout. You have yeah. apps, they're laid out. Um, although I think you might find Windows Phone more comfortable, 
Um, I don't think you'd be very comfortable with the security around Windows Phone at the moment, not at least till next year. I'm um, looking at what's coming. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but yeah, I haven't had to go in depth because it comes up so infrequently. Um, no, I mean, and, and again, it's not that I'm knocking necessarily Android. I've got one sitting next to me here as well. Is that it's the same user experience for the most part in, in many ways. Uh, yeah, I know there's differences, but like you said, the same springboard style concept versus something different. So, um, you know, it, those BlackBerry, Windows Phone, and even some offshoot kinds of things that are still floating around out there, uh, maybe not the strongest security model in the world anymore. BlackBerry, though, it is if you're on the kind of some of the older um, stuff. But by the same token, uh, you know, the risk level is not, not that high. Uh, because of the lower adoption rates. Now, clearly, iOS and Android are dominating the landscape. And, you know, this is where we're seeing some very, very interesting differences across those platforms. Uh, and I just hate to say it, just Android's not there from a security perspective. It's, it's getting better. It gets better with every version. It has crippled that ecosystem by two things. The first is that it is still carrier-dominated. And multiple phone manufacturer dominated, so it's. So 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 let's just make that clear to the listener. So you know when you're getting Android, you're based upon you know carrier deals. You know a- Apple is very specific. Apple pretty much puts out their phones with no changes, um, no bloatware or anything else on it. Whereas on Android, you know you have a Verizon model, you have an AT and T, Sprint, T Mobile, Vodafone, Orange. You know we could go on and on. Yeah, and- it is. Not just the branding, it's the fact that they make very deep changes to the operating system. And in many cases, you the, the biggest problem is, is fragmentation, and they do not tend to support those phones over time. So, so Apple, you have an old, older iOS device. You usually you get years more of updates, typically, out of iOS. And I can't remember how far back iOS 7 is supporting, at least to the iPhone S, if not the iPhone 4. Uh, Probably, I think they may be dropping the 3GS. You, you might know they, that better than I. They're dropping the 3GS. They will support the 4, although they won't, so obviously, like they do with every time they come out, they don't support every single feature. Yeah, so they're, from a security perspective, though, they're supporting updates. So that's effectively four generations of phones that are going to be supported, and the 4 has been out for a few years now. You don't get that with Android, typically. Yeah. Uh, unless you're, you've managed to buy one of those stock, I think, you know, one of the ones basically from Google. Uh, those are not support. So I have an HTC One V, and it wasn't updated. You, I can't update the operating system. You know, a year later. On yes. That. So yeah, unless you buy the Nexus brand of phones directly from Google, or you get the HTC One or the Samsung Galaxy Four that you can also get directly from Google. Yep. Um, they aren't upgraded until. Both the OEM, the manufacturer, HTC or Samsung, Motorola, etc., updates it. But those updates then have to go through the carrier. And the carrier has to agree to push them out. Major issues that Google's had for a while now. Yeah, and, and they don't do that very often. And it's, it's really difficult because I wouldn't be able to criticize Android as much. Uh, and and there, there's some just massive vulnerabilities on the platform we know are not getting fixed. Uh, and that's a big issue, um, big enough. That, and we know that there's active exploitation. So that first issue is the fragmentation and the lack of updates. 
The next issue associated with Android is it's a less lockdown ecosystem. And I realize there are a lot of people who prefer open and, and like those advantages. And I used to. I, I used to flat out be that way. But because it's not as closed a system, it does make it easier for malicious software to end up on those devices uh, to the point of where, for example, just this last uh, in the within the past week, um, Homeland Security and the FBI released an alert to law enforcement agencies that, you know, of the malware they found on mobile devices, I think what seventy eight, seventy nine percent was on Android, point zero seven percent was found on iOS, and. I should actually pull that up. I can't remember which other platforms were uh, exposed. Well, those those were the two major ones, and you know, I you know, but let's be a little bit fair here when we talk about um, you know, you say it yourself. We talk about risk versus security. Um, a lot of the malware risk, and yes, there is a fair amount on Android, is a lot more in the Asia Pac region and places like that where people aren't using Google Play. They're using, um, pretty, they're sideloading everything because they're their own app stores, and you can put pretty much anything in them. Yeah, the risk of, and that's what I was going to get to, is when you go through, um, basically Google Play, far far lower risk with those devices. Um, but the researchers I talk with, it is easier still for different kinds of exploitation uh, on those. But you know, if you're smart. And and again, it's the same as if you jailbreak an iPhone, you're you're hosed from a security perspective at that point because you just turned off most of the security controls. So if you break out of kind of the stock lockdown experience, it tends to be where you have problems. Uh, iOS does have a stronger security model because they're able to tie more in directly to the hardware than Android is able to do because it runs on multiple different platforms. We are seeing more security-oriented uh, Android phones, you know, being developed and being brought to market. Uh, it's just again, when you ask me from an operating system level, you know, we know kind of all the exploitation for the most parts on Android these days. Uh, it's tough, um, and, and this is in the U.S. It's not just internationally, but uh, the banking trojans and those sorts of things, because you have background apps run and the access that they have within the operating system. There's just more problems on Android from a security perspective. It will get cleaned up over time, but the design decisions and the ecosystem decisions Google made with Android just means it's going to take longer for those things to get cleaned up. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm not going to disagree with you on this because you know I, I've said for a couple of years now that it's been a real shame to watch the way Google has approached security in Android. Um, you know, there was a company called 3LM, which was actually two people from Google who left Google. They were working on Android, and they built a company called 3LM that did security. Um, it then got bought by Motorola and then when Motorola got bought, um, pretty much Google got rid of it a second time and those assets moved to HTC, which was, um, and Boxtone. I'm sorry, not HTC when I think went to Boxtone, but you know, it's one of those things of they keep getting the security and getting rid of it. So, you know, it makes it interesting, but let's then focus on Apple a little bit because we've spent some time on Android and, you know. If I get it right, you're saying Apple's taking security a little bit more seriously. Let's can we talk about that evolution? Because I know that you know, having watched it, it's gotten more and more. Starting with you know, pretty much the three GS had a little bit, then a lot more with the four, and then the four S and the five. And you know, we can certainly talk about iOS seven that's coming out, and you know, is the next question. But you know, talk a little bit about that evolution. Yeah. So 
when Apple first released the iPhone, I, I was still at Gartner working as an analyst at the time, and I was one of the people saying, you know, the iPhone isn't enterprise ready, and security is a big reason for that. And for the first couple of versions, that was very true. Um, we are it was around iOS four or five that, that things really started clamping down a little bit um, when they opened up to apps, uh, as well as once you hit the iPhone 4S in particular. So the 3GS, they first started putting crypto chips on. Um, but really, really, by the time they got to the 4S is when some of the security, you know, the hardware aspects of security uh, with the A5 chip really got kind of locked into place. And, and that's really, there's a couple of things about about iOS. It is more locked down, and sometimes that is annoying. Um, <laughs> and sometimes, you know, there's things I, as a power user, I wish I could do that I can't. But it is... a Right now, the most secure platform, and the reason being is more is tied into the hardware. Uh, everything is code signed. There's a lot more encryption options and default encryption built onto it. Uh, Apple is focusing more on trying to drive the users to using things like passcodes, uh, as well as they've got opportunities, different kinds of security containers um, that that uh, administrators can implement there. So, you know, we can go into the details. I don't know how technical you want to get on some of these things, but uh, they've done a good job. Now, if you don't put a passcode on your device, you might as well forget about it. I mean, you throw most of that security away. Uh, but there's still some of the compartmentalization between apps, which helps quite a bit. And, and it stinks because that's what makes some of the things I wish I could do on iOS so difficult. Uh, share, not having a share information between apps, do some of yep. that stuff that you know, kind of when you multitask. I'm going to guess. Because trust me, I, you know, as much as I like Apple, I run into the same things. There are things that I can do on my Android devices that I wish I can do on my Apple devices, and vice versa. Yep. You know, I sometimes I wish I could just take the two and meld them together. Um, yeah, I mean, the lack of a single file store is is pretty pretty high up on that list. But the advantages is then nobody can sniff your data. You'll notice a lot of the kind of data sniffing things that occur, not sniffing, but but an app getting access to data, it, it's always the same things. It's contacts, calendar entries, the photos, reminders. It's the common things that Apple exposes for multiple apps to be able to gain access to. And even then, you still have to approve access to all of those as they've added more and more privacy controls. Uh, so you can actually get on a per-app basis restrict access to those those different things. So the elimination of those that shared central file system, essentially, I mean, there is one there. It's just everything is isolated into app-specific containers. Uh, it has really reduced the risk of data leakage on those devices um, between different applications. So that, that's been kind of nice. And you combine that with their approach to encryption, um, and it's in pretty good shape. And then you have the other piece that, you know, Apple started with um, iOS 4 and 5, where they pretty much started exposing APIs for, you know, what we call MDM, mo uh, mobile device management and the like, so that companies could actually enforce that and put some security there. Um, I still think that's a little bit of legacy thinking, where it's controlling the device versus looking at the data. But, you know, that's a forward-thinking piece, which you're seeing, you know, everybody else has kind of glommed on to and started doing. Yeah, I mean, well, anybody that, that wants to play in the enterprise has to have some level of MDM, and, and Apple keeps exposing hooks, and Android's exposed hooks there as well. So, um, you know, that that's not just the MDM, but um, Exchange Active Sync as well, which is like the poor man's MDM, uh, which can be handled separately. As, and they, they keep improving the configuration and the profiling, and 
There's more stuff, some of which is public, that's been announced for iOS 7 to kind of enhance that, as well as some changes in, in terms of data flow with iOS 7, uh, which which I think are going to be quite interesting. So let's use that to start now. I And we're both covered under the NDA. There's stuff we can talk about and can't talk about within iOS 7, at least for another uh, two weeks, it looks like. But um, what can we say about iOS 7? I mean, we both sat through the keynote. Um, and there's been a bunch of stuff that they've revealed on their web pages and all. Um, what do you see in iOS 7 that really excites you and, you know, where you think it's going? Yeah, so this stuff's all public. This was all announced, so I'm not going to talk about anything under the NDA. And, in fact, I, I've been using it. I have not actually done the research on the underlying uh, – how all the underneath stuff works, so I, I can't – couldn't violate the NDA if I wanted to, I don't think, when it comes to uh, the security on the devices. Uh, so there's a few things that are public. Uh, the first is is that's very interesting. So uh, I've talked a bunch about how – and I've written some articles about how Apple is approaching security differently in the sense that they are looking at it as a user experience issue, uh, not merely a series of technical controls. And that's why I, w- I was pretty interested that they – basically introduce keychain synchronization. So that's something technically they synchronized the keychain before, which is where all of your passwords, encryption keys, and stuff are stored. But with iOS 7, and this is announced, uh, as well as OS 10, 10.9, within the Safari web browser, if you put in a username and password, uh, that is stored and, and securely synchronized to all of your other devices. I think for... Now, now you probably use one password like I do, or, or... I, I, I absolutely I happen to love one password, and you know, in some ways, I would kind of hope that there's an open API there that I can actually push some of that stuff back and forth, you know, for, with Safari. But um, that's just me being hopeful. Yeah, and you know, even if you you have to double up a little bit, you know, you uh, what's interesting is it's the seamless experience, and and what I like about this is users. Regular users, people not like us, are not going to default to strong usernames and passwords, and particularly on mobile devices. Uh, and uh, you know what? I haven't actually looked to see, and I couldn't talk about it anyway, if iOS will do the password generation uh, the way the Mac does. But keychain synchronization, I think, is a really powerful kind of a thing because it just makes some of this password issues go away for the user which is great. So they can use strong passwords. They can use multiple passwords. Uh, and it's built into the browser because I love trying to get friends and family on one password, and it's a pain in the behind if they're not willing tech-savvy and willing to go through. I mean, it's like almost no extra steps, and to me it's easier. But you know how, how people who aren't into this stuff you know, maybe. Yeah, yeah, trust me. I, I run through it with my family, you know, just my immediate family. But, you know, just so people understand, when um, Rich is talking about password generation, when you go to a page and it asks for a password, there's a button you can click on that generates a strong password. So I can be, I can honestly say that I may know maybe six of all of my hundred passwords yeah. because, you know, they're made up for me. They're strong passwords. They got numbers. They got letters. They got other stuff in them. Um, and it's just automatically saved and it's on all my devices. So, I have, um, looking at my one password, I have 914 unique passwords. Wow. You, you, you way beat me on that one. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I signed up for way too much stuff. Um, so I think that's probably one of the bigger pieces. Um, the others are uh, the new thing. So the problem we, – we've had this problem with, with stolen cell phones and particularly 
uh, things like new iPhones that carry a lot of value. They're subsidized here in the U.S., but you sell those things overseas or you sell those things once you do some hacking and unlock them. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's very much worth a bad guy to, to steal a phone and you know make a couple few hundred dollars profit potentially potentially, depending on where they, they dump the phone into the market. So Apple now has activation lock, which is if you have a, an iCloud account, it will synchronize to your iCloud account. You set that security setting. And if somebody steals your phone at a firmware level, that's locked. So until the bad guys can break that, they can't resell your phone. The only way – now you can reboot your phone and you can unlock your phone. But without that iCloud – you go into iCloud and you click my phone is stolen and that thing is dead to the world. And I, I think that's something that's going to make law enforcement very happy. Uh, I think it could have a potentially really dramatic effect on on the theft of phones if it works effectively. Yeah. And look, and, and somebody you, know, you see Samsung and LG just announced they're going to be trying something similar, although they haven't said how. But I fully agree with you on this one because uh, my daughter's phone got lost slash stolen. And it's one of those things that I wish I had you know, a year ago when that happened. Yeah, I mean, I might be able to recover, and this is again. It, Apple has been focusing in many cases on attacking the economics of security issues. So, right now, from a security perspective, if my phone is stolen. You know, assuming I get get to it fast enough, and I've got a passcode on it, uh, I can wipe it. I may be able to physically locate it, but I may not be able to get it back. I mean, if they're smart, you know, and, and they'll just wipe the phone, my data will be be lost anyway. Um, I have on a, I'm an iPhone five, so they can't really recover the data the way my phone's configured right now. So I, I would still lose physically though the the price of that phone with activation lock. Okay, they can still steal my phone. It's not that my data is at any less risk because Apple's got their bases covered pretty well on the newer models with that. Uh, it's that all of a sudden those phones are going to be a lot less appealing to steal in the first place, uh, and that's the part that I think is interesting. So let me ask you a question. How long is your timeout before your phone locks with a passcode? Yeah, I have mine on the default 10 because I haven't wanted to – oh, uh, before my screen locks, I think I've got it 15 minutes. And how? And is it 15 minutes before it locks and passwords or do you have it set for 15 minutes or an hour? Uh, 15 minutes before it locks and passwords. And then I, I adjust that. Like if I'm traveling to certain kinds of conferences, I'll, I'll lower that threshold down. And if I'm just hanging out at home, then – um, you know, I'll, I, I may up that. See, I, the reason I ask is, you know what, you're a security guy and you're a risk guy. It's always good to, you know, hear how the people who live this stuff every day, what they actually do. Yeah. The thing is, is that the big change I've made is I switched off a four character passcode, uh-huh. uh, which is problematic is like if I'm driving with the kids in the car and they want me to play a particular song, uh, you know, on the radio, cause I've got young kids, uh, I have to enter when was it? Yeah. You have to enter a bunch of different characters. So here's yeah, a- I think I'm up at a. I think I have a eleven or twelve character passcode. Uh, I'm I'm at eight. But so then let me ask another question: Are you running Siri um, on your lock screen or no? I do allow Siri on my lock screen. I disable that when I travel to certain places, as well as the the publicly announced uh, changes in terms of the uh, the iOS home or the um, control center and control center. I do run those open when I'm normally traveling. The thing is, is I am psychically connected to my phone. And if that's out of my vicinity, I will probably get to it very, very quickly uh, and and lock that puppy down really, really quickly. Uh, but yeah, again, I mean, I, there's a little bit of risk that I'm accepting there. 
Um, I use those features so extensively, though, that it is, and I think the overall risk to my data is low enough that I'm okay with that. Because really, no one's going to get to my email through that mechanism. Uh, they're only going to be able to get to to you know certain other aspects of my phone, so that's why I'm okay with it. Okay, that may, but that makes sense, and yeah, that's great. That's great for the listeners to hear and hear how someone who lives this every day actually deals with it. And Brian, the last thing is, is half the reason I I change my settings when I travel to certain kinds of conferences. It's not that I'm worried about bad guys or if I'm traveling to certain. You're worried other about friends, I'm going to guess. I am. I got a bunch of security friends. They like nothing more than to screw with each other's phones. So. Well, it's just like you know, at work, if you if you leave your laptop unlocked. You know, you're going to end up IMing somebody. Yeah. Um, and it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we've seen that at work, and we do that to each other every now and then. So, yeah, a couple more questions. You know, don't want to take up too much of your time, but you actually wrote an excellent article. Um, it was titled Apple Security Strategy, Making It Invisible. And, you know, it, it really resonated with me. I remember reading it when you first put it out about a month and a half ago. And can you talk about this? Because I look at, you know, the gist of it as I took it was, you know, Apple's trying to make life easier for people. It's not just security for security theater's sake or anything else. It's building security into what we do every day without necessarily making it our day more difficult. And you made a case for the fact that this is the right way to do it and that everybody's got to do it this way. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. So... Really good security guys, just like any software developers or, or engineers by nature, even if you don't actually have formal engineering training. And you focus on the technology and you focus on you know making the features work and understanding it. Uh, and but it, it really one of the biggest obstacles to effective security is you create obstacles to how a user wants to interact with a system or, or with a piece of hardware or software or whatever. And we. The, the way I, I like to say it is, and it comes from Gunnar Peterson, a, a good friend. Um, he saw something I wrote years ago, and he's like, you know, where I was talking about how security isn't avail- about availability. Security actually tends to decrease availability. And Gunnar said, yeah, every security control is a denial of service attack against the user. Every time you have to enter a password, every time you have to do whatever, that gets in the way of the user's experience with that device. And so the more invisible you can make security and the more you can fit it into their workflow, the more they'll comply with it. So take passcodes on phones. Passcodes on phones are a complete crappy hack. I mean, there's, you know, it, it's ridiculous. So I'm driving along and I have to to use my phone. I have to, you know, try and type in a passcode. And that's not even to do texting or anything like that. It's just like to change a song. Um, and, and Siri and some of the hands-free stuff can help with that. Uh, except my car is too noisy because my kids are in it. So. No, no, but I, I'm fully with you because my favorite phone, and I'm, I'm really hoping that um, – Apple actually does put the fingerprint sensor in. Um, my favorite phone um, to use daily from the perspective of passcode and everything else was the Motorola Atrix, the original one. It actually had a fingerprint reader on top that you could hold the phone normally and take your index finger, run your fingerprint, um, and it was natural, and it unlocked the phone. So you could still use the passcode, but you could use your fingerprint. And it was gorgeous. It, you know, I didn't have to remember my passcode. It always worked. It was, you know, I mean, some people had problems with the sensor. They didn't continue with it. But, you know, that's part of the place that I see. If you get everybody doing that and that sensor appears in the iPhone uh, 5S, 6, whatever the next one's going to be called, I think that's a big deal. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not making bets that it's going to be in the next version because I just I, I've been covering Apple in depth for enough years now. That I just don't predict anything necessarily, particularly oh. where hardware is concerned. Yeah, we can't. I mean, they only bought the company last year. Who knows? It, and you know, it may take another version before it gets there. But you know, that's. How- the, but I was going to say that's the type of thing that kind of gets you. You know, that makes it a little more invisible to you. I can absolutely see Apple adding it because that's core to the user experience. And a lot of the problems that I have with biometrics aren't as big an issue with a phone. Uh, for example, a biometric on your computer, a biometric on the door for a door lock, that's just really typically easy to bypass because it's a one step. You just have to have physical access to it. Uh, it's the same thing is true with the phone. Somebody can probably take a photocopy of my fingerprint and then use that to, to unlock the phone. But the the steps for an average person, for somebody to go to get that fingerprint, lift that fingerprint, move it into a format that it'll work on the phone, then gain physical access to the phone, and then and then break in, and that's that's a lot. That's a hard series of steps. The other piece is is with some other things that are biometrically protected. If you're able to pull a package of the data off, then you can actually kind of brute force the fingerprint uh, because. A fingerprint is actually a template. Uh, yes. it's, it's not your full fingerprint. It's a template that's used. And so you can try and kind of brute force that template or, or do even cryptographic tech attacks against it. And that's, again, we have all the hardware security and everything else on a phone that on iPhones that it's very hard forensically to do that. What does this translate to? If they add a passcode, no idea if they're going to do it or not. I hope they do, but I'm not planning on it. If they add a, a fingerprint reader, I'm sorry onto the phone, uh, I think that it will be bypassable, maybe by law enforcement, likely by law enforcement, likely by governments, likely by very highly targeted industrial espionage, or if you have hacker friends like me you know, at Black Hat or DEF CON, and they get my fingerprint, and they get my phone, and, you know, which is not going to be easy combination to do, somebody can get into the phone. Nobody cares because that is like less than the 1% that need to worry about that. And then you just add the passcode back on. So I do think uh, if they do that, um, you know, it'll be be very very interesting. Uh, I think it could have a really big effect. Uh, the DoD guys and everything else, and you'll see a lot of articles, particularly the first time somebody bypasses it, you know, about how it's not suitable for government use or whatever. They'll just turn on passcodes back on anyway, you know, on top of the fingerprint reader uh, or instead of it, and then we'll be in a secure state again. I mean, I'm a big believer that anything's hackable. So the truth of the matter is, if you really want to get into something, you're going to find a way to do it. But for normal people, I don't think it's the worry, which is what you're saying. But, you know, if we get back to the original premise, it it seems to me what you're really saying is security really needs to start looking at usability too. Yeah, absolutely. And be looking at usability as the primary or, you know, as one of the, the top two or three factors when you're developing a security control. Okay, so thinking about that, what's next? I mean, this has been a great conversation, but really, what do you expect to see next in the next couple of years? I mean, we're not going to go 10 years out, but, you know, we're talking fingerprint readers, we're talking some biometrics. Um, what other stuff do you think we're going to see? Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to continue to see uh, strong the implementation of strong sandboxing, and I suspect some some alterations around cloud services and the uh, ability to kind of better share data uh, and in kind of a more seamless way. I mean, that's a really handicap on iOS. 
and I think there's ways to to manage that. Uh, we are, uh, you know, and, and just the continual cat and mouse around the hardware. In terms of major features, you know, for the most part, I think we're past that. If you really look at the security issues on these devices, they're, they're somewhat minor these days. I mean, the big low hanging fruit for the most part has been addressed. Um, the areas that haven't been are, are areas that actually are kind of addressed. For example, uh, concerns around encrypted communications. You can't have an encrypted voice call. Actually, that's built in on iOS, FaceTime. You can do FaceTime voice, uh, and it is uh, an encrypted end-to-end voice call that technically Apple might be able to put something in the middle, but, but not in an easy way based on the architecture uh, of that. So it's not quite as secure as something like Silent Circle or Wicker, but it, you know, definitely more secure than a, an open voice call. Um, and uh, you know, I'm kind of stumped when you ask that question a little bit because I think the the biggest thing is dealing with the passcode issue right now, uh, and then it's sharing credentials between applications when it's needed. And you know, Apple's announced some things to move in that direction a little bit, and that's a careful one to be moved into. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I'll agree. You got anything on your radar screen? <laughs> well, I'll agree with you. I think single sign-on is huge, and how that happens is going to be very interesting. How it plays out, especially within the enterprise. Yep. Um, you know, I'm starting to think a lot about contextual computing, and looking at things like Google Now, Siri, Tempo, Donna, um, those sorts of apps that are, you know, they're looking at your calendar, they're looking at LinkedIn, they're looking at your contacts. Um, they may be looking in five, six, seven apps, and they're trying to, you know, help you with your day. But that becomes real interesting when you start thinking about, A, the security model around the apps, B, the security model around the information itself, and how do I, you know, I still want those alerts when the phone's locked. You know, I want the phone to tell me when I'm in the middle of the meeting, you know, you need to start packing up and leave now to get to your next one. And by the way, here's who you're meeting and everything else, and you know, I think that the security and the pieces around that are going to be huge because I think contextual computing is the real next big thing to kind of hit this stuff. Yeah, so what you're calling, you know, contextual computing, uh, to me, is just another cloud service. And you asked me on the mobile side, and that's kind of where I was a little stumped because on the mobile devices themselves, uh, particularly on the in the Apple world, I, I think, first of all, we're going to see Android continually moving closer to the Apple model and, and adding similar kinds of capabilities. Uh, on the Apple side, maybe a little bit more management functionality for enterprises. We've seen that actually already start, as well as the single sign-on you mentioned, hopefully a fingerprint reader at some point. But the securely managing those cloud services, that, that that's cloud security, another area I spend most, you know, cloud mobility is where I spend most of my time these days. That's a whole different world. I think that's a, and a different set of problems I could talk for weeks on end. As a matter of fact, I teach training classes on it, so yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that'll make it interesting. I think it's how those interact and what you actually do on your device versus in the cloud becomes a whole other uh, piece, especially when you're talking enterprise versus personal information. Yep. So, yeah, I think those services and the security of those services is going to be critical and uh, and absolutely an area that – that's one area I am not haven't quite seen everything I would like to out of, uh, out of Apple. So they're, they're great so- on – a lot of places, but the services side, I think, is they're still a little too opaque there for my liking. Oh, well, we're going to have to wait till they get a little less opaque, and then we're going to have to do another one. And maybe what we'll do is um, I'll talk to Brian and Aaron, and we'll put you on the Cloudcast, and you know, have another one of these wonderful security conversations. Combine all three. 
Um, Rich, I got to thank you. I mean, you, you spent over 40 minutes. This is probably one of the longest uh, mobile casts we've done, and this has been an absolutely awesome conversation. And, you know, great starting point and, you know, getting into some of this stuff with what we've been talking about with security and everything else recently. So, Rich, thank you so much for coming on. No worries. I'm uh, really happy to be here. And, you know, we'll put it in we'll put it in the show notes and everything. But where can people follow you and, you know, read your stuff? You can find me at Securosis.com, S-E-C-U-R-O-S-I-S.com. And most of my uh sort of general audience security stuff, particularly around Apple and Android, uh, appears at Macworld and at Tidbits. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Rich. Um, I appreciate the time and thank you audience for um, listening to another episode. If you have suggestions, topics you want to hear, um, stuff you want to see us talk about, please send us notes on Twitter, email, um, hit the website and we'll be talking to you next week. (laughs) 